Amen. 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 With the horns now. Amen. With the rhythm now. Amen. Each week at RUF, we do open the Bible and we read it. And um, the question, I guess, is why? Why would we do that? You know, we could do anything together. Um, well, not anything. Um, a lot of things together. And why would we open up the Bible and read it together? And um, we hope that in RUF you do find genuine friendships, things that are deeper than just like the high school you went to or your major. And you know when you have a friend that that person is a good friend when they will tell you something that's good for you to hear even if it hurts, right? Like you know that a friend really loves you and cares about you and you can count on them. Like my dude Nate Henderson is in the house. We've been friends for a long time. And I know that if I had something in my teeth, that Nate would tell me about it, right? Because he loves me. You know, like that might be embarrassing to me. But you know, a good friend will always tell you something that you need to hear, even if it's hard. Like they, a good friend might say, you know, I just, I'm not sure she's actually into you, you know? And that's something you might need to hear, even if it hurts, or he's I'm not sure he's into you. Um, or the ultimate good friend says, hey, I love you so much. Can I tell you, like, how you're coming off to people? And then they tell you that hard thing, and then they don't leave. They don't run away. They say, I'm, I'm committed um, to be with you. And that's a good friend. And part of the reason why we open the Bible and read it is because God shows himself to be a good friend to us in the Bible. He tells us what is true and the things that we need to hear when he speaks through the Bible um, because he loves us. You won't find a message of love like the one in the Bible anywhere else, but also the Bible is really honest about who we are. And tonight in our passage, we're going we're gonna, to, I think, feel and sense some of that. And so we're in Ephesians chapter 2. The book of Ephesians is a letter that a guy named Paul, you might have heard him called the Apostle Paul or St. Paul, wrote to a church, an ancient church in Ephesus. And it was a church in a big city where there had, there, these people from different racial and cultural backgrounds had become Christians and they were trying to figure out how to live together, uh, even though they really hated each other. And... Um, as you're turning there and looking at that, uh, I want to tell a story. This is a story that my wife has told me many times. My wife grew up in Pennsylvania, and she had a friend that we'll call Missy, because I think her name actually is Missy. Um, <laughs> but I'm not sure about that. And uh, anyway, so the story is that when Missy was in high school, she was riding in the backseat of her friend's dad's car. They were driving down Highway 83 in rural Pennsylvania. So it was Missy in the back seat, Missy's friend in the front seat. They were both about 15. And Missy's friend's dad was driving. Okay? 65 is the speed limit on 83, and they're, they're barreling down 83. Um, when suddenly, and very unexpectedly and tragically, uh, her friend's dad had a massive heart attack driving the car. Okay? A massive heart attack and died basically immediately. Okay? Which, is, which is awful, and you can only imagine what, her, what she was going through, what her friend was going through. Um, but as this happened, her dad is in the driver's seat of the car, and they are literally barreling down Highway 83 at 70 miles an hour, and nobody is in control of the car. Okay? And the reason I tell that story and leave it hanging there for a second, we'll come back to it, don't worry, is because I want that story to be sort of in your mind as we begin reading this passage. 
because it's pretty stark um, what God says about us in this passage. And I want to start just reading the first three verses if you want to follow along or listen. Paul writes this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And and the Apostle Paul is writing to this church and speaking to us here thousands of years later as we hear this message. And he, he gets right to it. He says, look, all human beings show up in a place of spiritual death. Um, and what he means by that, he says at the very beginning, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. What he's saying is that people that are spiritually dead are incapable of responding to God. We're unable uh, to respond to a call that God might have on us. And that's where everyone's starting point. The people don't show up, each of us, and this isn't just people in general, but all the people in this room, we show up before God, not spiritually sick, not spiritually distracted, not spiritually confused, but dead. In a sense, God could, could, could speak anything over us that he wanted, call us to anything, and we would be unable to respond. But he, he goes on, he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, the, the death that he's talking about here is kind of like the dead on The Walking Dead. I gave up on The Walking Dead, going to be honest, um, because, you know, I thought this was going to be the last season. I tried to jump back in, and then they're like, no, nah, we're going to keep it going. And sometimes you just got to know when to kill a show, you know. And, um, but I'm, I'm out of The Walking Dead. But if you've ever watched The Walking Dead or really any zombie movie, you know that the dead never stop moving, right? They're always active. They never sit down. They never take a break. Even if they fall into a river, they're at the bottom of the river, and they're always moving. Everything, they're always moving to a place. And what Paul is saying is that is us. As human beings, we're always moving towards something. We're spiritually dead, but he says you are walking. You are following the course of this world. And he goes on to say that we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That the way that we show up is that we're always moving towards something, pushing towards something, clawing towards something, and that thing is ourself. That human beings, the Bible would say, that the way that we show up is that, we, that our hearts and our souls are bent in on ourselves. That we're always getting the thing that we want. That we're chasing our own passions and our own desires. That in a sense, that we're like a boat that's on a, a, a vast lake. But instead of moving about and, and having a life that we are just tied to the side of the lake. And then he, he says at the, at the very end there, and this is, I know this is bad news at first. You're like, thanks, Chris. This has been a really great ministry of encouragement to me tonight. He says that we were all, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, here's what you get to get about, about the Bible, because it's like you're spiritually dead. You're just folded in on yourself, and you're children of wrath. The Bible has the highest possible view of human dignity. I've never heard a system, uh, a religion, a faith, a philosophy that has a higher view of human dignity than the Bible does. The Bible actually teaches us that we are created not just by God, 
but in God's image, to be like God, to look like God, to function like God. But the Bible, while it has the highest possible view of human dignity, has the lowest possible view that I've ever pretty much heard of human moral ability, right? Paul's not mincing words here. He's saying that you are incapable of doing good. Now, the philosophical debate over whether you know, people are basically good or people are basically bad um, is interesting but not practical for us because you know and I know that pretty much everyone you've ever met does good things and does bad things. They may be in different order, in different degree. Oftentimes, I do good things for bad reasons, right? And you do bad things for good reasons often. And we're this mixed bag. But what we see in this passage and the point that Paul wants to get across to us and actually is freeing if we open ourselves to hear it, is that each of us in our basic essence is affected by this thing the Bible calls sin. And the sin is a heart turned in on itself that separates us from God, enslaves us, and leads us to spiritual death. And you may be thinking, you know, that doesn't feel that serious for me. You know, like this is kind of dark, you know. But it's important to recognize that that what Paul's saying is, isn't that you're the worst possible person, that you do the worst possible thing all the time, but this is an issue of degree. If you dig deep enough into each person's motives, what you will find at the bottom is the self. That we live for ourselves. You won't find beauty or love or justice, but the self. And I've been reading this great book. I would recommend it to you. It's called Unapologetic. And this is a great book about why the Christian faith actually makes emotional sense. And uh, this, is, this is what the writer, his name is Francis uh, Spooford, says. He refers to this nature, this thing that Paul's talking about, as HPTFTU. And I'll let you figure out what the F means. But he refers to it as a high propensity to F things up. Okay? He says that human beings by our nature have a high propensity to F things up. And, and this is what he says. HPTFTU is what flying a plane into a skyscraper has in common with persecuting the fat kid with zits. It's what doing crystal meth has in common with having an affair with someone you don't even like. It's what murder has in common with telling a story at a dinner party at the expense of an absent mutual friend. A story which you know will cause pain when it gets back to them, but which you tell anyway because it's just very, very funny. And Christianity wants us to know the look when we see it in a mirror and to know it too when we see it reflected in other people. Christians are supposed to understand that the family resemblance makes us family even with the nastiest and most frightening of our brothers and sisters. We're supposed to do our fallible failing best to perceive other bad people as kin, as family. And that's what Paul is getting across here. That whether it's doing the worst possible thing or telling a, a, a joke about a friend that isn't there at their expense just because it's so funny, is that we are, in a sense, enslaved to ourselves. Then my question for you, before you're like, you know, I'm done with this, you know, is do you feel free? I just want to, I want to take the moment because, again, I do believe that this can be very freeing for us if we just allow it to be. Because we spend so much of our time trying to convince ourselves that we're okay. Um, and when maybe you're not. Do you feel free to tell a friend something that they need to hear at the risk of them hating you? Do you feel free to be vulnerable with another person about your own failure or pain, 
even though it might make them stop texting you back? Do you feel free to befriend someone who doesn't increase your social standing? Or to forgive someone and let go of the intoxicating feeling of being right? To, do you, are you free to recognize that you've been hurt, but that that doesn't make you a victim? Are you free to admit that you're wrong? Are you free to break up with your significant other even though there isn't someone waiting in the wings and you might have to be alone for a while? Are you free to marry your significant other even though you don't have your lives perfectly arranged? I mean, when was the last time I or you did anything that wasn't at least in some part to make other people like us or to think well of us? Are you free to face the reality about yourself without numbing or justifying what you do? And Paul would say, if not, then you're enslaved to this thing that the Bible calls sin, that Spooford calls HPTFTU. Now, back to the car, because you guys are like, I'm getting pretty bummed out by this. <laughs> and it's okay. You know, it, it, it's like okay to hear something that's hard and recognize that it's hard. Back to the car. That's how we show up. That's what Paul's saying, that we're barreling down this highway without hope, and we're actually headed for destruction. And so what happened? Missy, the 15-year-old in the back seat, dives into the front seat of the car. Okay? You got to think that's heroin. I mean, her friend is like in shock. She dives into the front seat of the car on top of her friend's dad and steers the car off the road, slows the cars down, and stops and saves her and her friend from destruction. And that's exactly what God does if you keep reading the passage. In verse 4 is the two sweetest words that you will ever hear again if you allow yourself to hear them, and I pray that you will. But God. I mean, those are the two words that can actually really mark and change your life. Because whatever it is that if, if, that you, if you felt stirred by something when I was talking about the bad news, the answer is always, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And here's why. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The two sweetest words you will ever hear is, but God. God disrupts our spiritual death. God intervenes. He breaks in and he rescues. Because God is able to do the impossible. We think about what are we capable of doing um, not much, according to the passage, but what God is able to do is actually that which is impossible to us, which is to make something that is dead alive again. He's actually able to make us alive, to give us real life, to save us from being moored to the side of the lake and actually free to be that which we always were, were designed to be. And if you want to live, if you want to be fully alive, what the passage is saying to you tonight is that only God can do that for you. Only God can rescue you from that. You and I are unable to manufacture that life, to free ourselves from the tyranny of ourselves. Aren't you exhausted? Like, I hate marketing. 
Okay, no like shade to marketing major. That was a lot of shade actually to marketing <laughs> majors. You know, marketing has it has its place, right? But I'm exhausted of being marketed to. If something I know telling me this is exactly what you need, and I know that when I get it, I'll be disappointed with it. Because I'll, it'll never be enough for me. But God is able to free us from the tyranny of ourselves and to raise us from the dead. And the reason why he's able to do that is because while we are enslaved to ourselves, Jesus, who the Bible teaches was God himself, who had become a human being and lived among us, Jesus was free. He was the only free person that ever lived. He was free to love people without the fear of them abandoning him. Even though he was abandoned by his friends. He was free to tell the truth regardless of the consequences. He was free to follow God without having his future planned out. And the most beautiful thing about Jesus is that if you dug down to the deepest point of Jesus' motives, what you would find is beauty and justice and love. A love for God that could never be taken away and a love for you and for me. That was at the bottom, so he was free. He was free to love. And he was free to give us his life and to take our death. The Bible often talks about God's wrath, the bad news, and God's blessing, the good news, as cups. That God has a cup of wrath and that God has a cup of blessing. What Jesus did several thousands of years ago by going to a cross and suffering for things which he had no business suffering for because he had done nothing wrong, was that he took that cup of wrath from us, the one that we were born into, the passage says, and he drank it all the way down, and he gave us the cup of blessing. And you will never get the cup of God's wrath, ever, if you know Jesus, because, not because he's just not going to give it to you, but because he drank it all the way down. He took our death to give us life. And if you want to know good news, look at God's motives. I mean, if you think about your motives and actually look at them, and then contrast them with God's motives. Look in verse 4. The reason he did this is because he's rich in mercy. The thing that makes God rich is mercy. And then he goes on to say, because of the great love with which he loved us, God has done this because he loves you. Because nothing could ever possibly make him more full and happy than blessing you. People like you and me. People that are turned in on ourselves. And then I love in verse 7, it says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God rescues people from death because he wants to show you the riches of his kindness. And it would take an eternity to do that because they're immeasurable. He did that so that he could bring you up to where he is. You know, humans, and you know, some of you know this really well, we use power, our power, if we have power, to restrict access to things, right? That's what power, power doesn't mean that necessarily that you have money, doesn't mean that you're able to like hurt someone. What power really means is that you can prevent someone from getting somewhere that you are, right? You can, you can uh, disable them from getting there. Humans use power to restrict access, but God uses ultimate power to grant access. The reason why he raised people up is so that he could seat them where he is, in his presence. And it's all free. Again, in verse 8, he says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. 
The thing about a gift is that the only thing that you do with a gift is just receive it. He gives it to you. He offers it. That means that there's absolutely nothing attached to it. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. No one deserves deserves it. God just gives it for free. Because he loves you and he wants you to have life and to have freedom and to be the thing that you were always created to be, which is someone that doesn't at the deepest part of who you are just care about yourself. So what are you supposed to do with that? Now that I've gotten all worked up, you know. I'm going to Disney on Friday morning, so I'm just letting it all hang out. Um, What are you supposed to do? Uh, If you've ever been in a 12-step program, um, you will know the great wisdom that all 12-step programs know, which is the first step toward healing is confession. You will never have healing in your life until you are able to confess to other people and to God. And the invitation for you is just confess. It's all a gift. So you can just say to God, I was wrong. I was wrong about everything that I ever wanted, and it was so lame and compared to what you're offering to me, and I was wrong, and I'm sorry. And just take the gift. The gift is Jesus. And now everything will change from that point, because while you were more you know, to, to the side of the lake, and now you have to learn actually how to live as a boat that has a purpose out on the lake, and we'll get to that in a second. Everything will change because you don't just go from death to life without some major life disruptions. But what happens when you say, I was wrong, Jesus helped me, is that immediately God raises you up to be with Jesus. He doesn't say, now here's the path. He says, now you are with me in my love. You may have been hearing it your whole life, but you've never surrendered to Jesus. And this is a great time to do that because the gift is open for you. And if you're here and you are a believer in Jesus... This might mean that you need to confess your tendency to otherize people. To, as subtle as you want to make it, construct a people that are us and a people that are them. Because Spoofer is right about this. The great job of Christians is to recognize the nastiest and worst people around us and not just to call them friend, but to call them family. And to say, yes, that is me. Sometimes we just need to confess and change about talking about them, people who do those bad things. Because those are your people. That's your family. We are the people who say, if you're a Christian, even when we were dead, God acted. You didn't do anything to make God care for you. He just did. Confess how you stratify, stratify Christians into the serious holy ones and the silly fake ones. Please stop doing that. Because when you stratify Christians into the serious holy ones and the silly fake ones, all you're doing is saying, I have different stuff than they do. And I'm unwilling to be with them. And I'll I'll start with you. Um, This letter was written to Christians who came from completely hostile backgrounds and really hated each other. But had to figure out how to go from enemies to sisters and brothers. And this is the revolutionary power of Jesus. I know that everybody on this campus, no matter what they believe about God or don't believe about God, wants to not be judgmental, right? But we just can't seem to stop. That's from Jesus. Only recognizing that I did nothing to deserve it and God gave me everything anyway is the only thing to completely even the playing field. Because if it's all a gift, then you can't just pretend like you're somehow more deserving of that gift than anyone else because you're not. 
You're not, and that's great news because that means that there's nobody that you don't have to love and that you don't get to love. You were dead, now you're alive. Your life is not yours, it's God's. And that is mesmerizing if you let it. And the last thing um, that I think that, that we can do from this passage is just be happy. I was talking to Jake Hoffman that was up here playing the guitar, and he was like, what is up with all this like sad boy Christian stuff, you know? <laughs> like, I love Sufjan Stevens, and I love Seven Swans, and I like to be sad on Seven Swans. But he was like, I want to get to know God, and that actually makes me feel uplifted. And I was like, preach, bro. <laughs> because of what, what Paul says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What Paul says there is God is like a master craftsman, and the thing that he's worked his whole life to be able to make his magnum opus is us. And then all the good things that he has for you, he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Um, I have a friend, his name is Ricky. That's his real name. And uh, he's from Arkansas. And uh, he's the youngest of many brothers. And he grew up in rural Arkansas. And um, he, one year for Christmas, he made his brothers and his mom and his dad drawings. Okay, if you, I was going to say, if you have kids, but Nate, okay, if you have kids, you know, um, kids are always trying to make you some drawings. And like, you want to feel like everyone is really special, but they're, they're not always really special, right? So, um, so he gives all of his, his, his whole family drawings for Christmas, and then he notices about two hours later that with all the wrapping paper in the trash is all his drawings. Sept one, or as my kids would say, besept one. <laughs> Who do you think had kept the drawing? Mom, right? Okay, mom. Everyone's like, yeah, of course, mom. So his mom kept the, uh, the drawing, and he said, you know, next year, I'm going to get mom a real gift. So about November... He, uh, he's also six years old, by the way. I forgot to say that. <clears throat> and uh, he, he, says, he says, hey, mom, um, is there anything that, like, you want? You know, like anything that you've been, like, wanting to get? And she says, well, you know, I was at Kmart recently. This is when Kmart was a thing because it was the 70s. And, uh, and I saw these necklaces. And he was like, oh, great, great, great. Like, how much are they? She was like, I think they're, like, $10. She's like, cool. That's really great. Thanks for telling me that. Hey, um, is there any, like, do you know any way I could, like, make some money? And, you know, like, ten, ten dollars And, uh, you know, because I will tell you, six-year-olds think that they know a lot of stuff that you don't know. And, uh, which is true about, you know, real things. But anyway. Um, and uh, she was like, well, actually, there's some sticks in the yard. And I really need someone to gather up these sticks and take them across the street. Okay? This is clearly a fake job, right? Like, this isn't a real job. This is a job that you just want to pay somebody and make them feel like they earned it. Okay? So, um, so he's like, okay, great, 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 I can do that. And so he spends all afternoon picking up the sticks and carrying them across the street and dumping them on the other side of the street, probably somebody else's yard. And, uh, and he comes in and he's like, hey, mom, I did it. And she gives him the $10. She's like, oh, thanks, this is great, this is great, it's great, great. Hey, really unrelated, but like, are you going to Kmart any, anytime soon? Because I, I got to go. I got to get some stuff from Kmart. And uh, she was like, well, I'm, you know, I was going to go tomorrow. Do you want to go? It's about 30 minutes away. So she puts him in the car, just him and her. They drive to, to Kmart the next day. Um, he finds the necklaces, and he, he checks out, right? And then he has his little bag. And then she drives him back home in the van. And then he gets home, and he's like, I'm, gonna wrap, I'm, gonna, I'm about to wrap these. 
And uh, whether you're six or 60, uh, you know, it takes a lot of work to learn how to wrap a gift. Let's just leave it at that. And uh, he does a terrible, terrible job of wrapping this gift. And he's like, this, this, this won't stand. This gift has to be beautifully wrapped. And because um, I want her to be surprised. And uh, so he takes the gift to the person that he knows is really good at wrapping, which is his mother, right? And, uh, and he says, hey, mom, I have this box. Don't look at it. And uh, could you wrap it? And so she wraps it, you know, in this beautiful gold paper. And then she does the ribbon. And then the thing with the ribbon where you take the scissors and it's like, zzz, you know, and uh, it makes the curls, you know, which is like, I've tried to do that a million times and it goes like this, you know. And, um, and my wife is used to opening presents although they were wrapped by a six-year-old and uh, she gives it to him and it's beautiful it's got the bow it's perfectly folded and it's just, it's just a beautiful gift and uh he says thanks mom thanks so much and so he puts the gift under the tree and then christmas morning comes that was loud <laughs> christmas morning comes and um santa uh and, and, uh, <laughs> and of course he's the first one up because kids are always the first ones up and he goes but he doesn't go to open gifts he says i want to give the first gift Right? And he gets the gift from under the tree. And he walks it to his mother. Now let's review. This is a gift that his mom told him she wanted. She paid for it for fake work. She drove him to the store. She picked it out. She drove him home. And she wrapped it. Okay? And she, he gives it to her. And he, he's just so proud. And he gives it to her. And she opens it. And her eyes just fill with tears. And she takes out the necklaces and she puts them on and she takes her boy up in her lap and she holds him and she says, thank you, Ricky. It's exactly what I wanted. And what God is saying to us tonight from this passage, when he says that you're his, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them, is that you can be happy. Everything that God wants from you, he already gave it to you. And the good news, the reason why you can rejoice is because you can just give it back to him. That's literally what freedom and spiritual life look like for us. Jesus is inviting you into life right now, wherever you are, and it's all free, and it's life, and it's for you. Let's pray. Our, our, Our Lord, we thank you. We could never begin to imagine how free the gift of life is. And Lord, we are a mess. I'm a mess. I, I could not fly straight to save my life. And yet, Lord, you, you don't, you don't leave us to that. You don't abandon us in that. But you just say, just come to me. And, and, and it's all for you. And Lord, I'm, I'm amazed, I'm mesmerized legitimately at the kindness of your grace. And Lord, I thank you for every, uh, for every woman in this room and for every man in this room and for their stories. And Lord, I don't know their stories, but you do. And Lord, I know that every one of these stories is in some way marked by enslavement to ourselves. And so Lord, I just ask that you would set us free from that, that you would help us just to come to you, Jesus, and to just, just to take it and just to learn how to smile about it. Lord, forgive us for just trying to either run our own lives or to, to otherize other people. And just, Lord, teach us to love you and to love our neighbor. Um, 
We desperately want that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody say